Welcome to Deal Us In, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. Deal Us In promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women leaders and rising stars in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. Hi, everyone. This is Kelsey Hitchcock, one of your hosts on Deal With In. Today, we're speaking with Kristen Moran. Kristen is a partner in Ernst & Young's Fraud Investigation and Dispute Services Practice in Chicago. Kristen, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Kristen, I think we could just start by, if you want to give a little bit of background on your practice, that would be great. Sure. So like you described, I'm in our forensics practice at EY. So that's like the forensics arm of our big four firm. All of the big four firms have a forensic piece. I specialize in what we call transaction forensics. So if any forensic accounting element within the context of a merger acquisition transaction. So if you think about forensic type due diligence in a deal, anti-bribery, anti-corruption, fraud type diligence, I lead teams that conduct that type of diligence and liaise with our transactions practice. We also provide expert accounting services in the context of a deal. So I will regularly serve as an accounting arbitrator. So for those who are familiar with the deal process and more specifically familiar with purchase agreements, you may have seen like the term resolution accountant or independent accounting firm to resolve working capital or an earnout at the end of a transaction. If that goes before Ernst & Young, you might be before somebody like me. I really enjoy that role. I spend probably most of my practice time now serving as an arbitrator or as an expert on behalf of a buyer seller through that post-transaction process and also advising our clients to tighten the language of the purchase agreement from an accounting perspective to hopefully avoid that process. But I promise that process is not as scary as it sounds for those who have not been through it. <laughs> I haven't had the, the joy of being through that process, but I can only imagine. I know that when I'm drafting the contract, I always think, who is this independent accountant that we're <laughs> sending this to? <laughs> and it's yeah. you. <laughs> yes, it is. It's me. And I think it's a lot of fun. You know, so I graduated with an accounting degree on the heels of Enron and the implosion of Arthur Anderson. I actually interned at Arthur Anderson. So coming out of college, you know, almost two decades ago and deciding on a career, it was interesting that that was happening in the world. And it kind of drove me to look at the forensic side of accounting versus taking a traditional path, more traditional path through audit or tax or some other type of accounting services that you could provide clients. So I was attracted to forensics, I think, just because of the environment and had to look for a new firm when Anderson went under. So I found EY and have been really happy in the forensics practice ever since. I did a lot of fraud investigations into Ponzi schemes and financial misstatements and all kinds of investigations coming up through my career. And when I started working on these post-transaction dispute projects, I think that's when, for me professionally, like it just really kind of clicked that this is a really fun spot to be in as an accountant. 
I can only imagine that it's a really cool experience because it sounds, you kind of sit as judge and jury after these parties have been through this entire transaction process. So, I mean, you really can help at any stage of the process, but being kind of at that, the end game after they've already closed is a really interesting process, I'm sure. Yes, it it is. Personalities play a big role. (laughs) (laughs) I am sure. I can tell you from the drafting the documents, they certainly do there. And it's interesting to think about when, once we put those into practice, what you see on the other end. I'm sure there are certain times where you're thinking about if you could only go back in time, how you would help the parties with the drafting of their documents and different accounting principles or statements you would add in to clarify the language instead of dealing with what's in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. We could do a whole separate podcast on that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kristen, I want to talk to you. What is, you know, you've been practicing for a long time. For in your career, how have you seen the culture for women change, you know, in the last, say, 10 years? What do you feel has improved? How do you think it's improved? Do you see more women at the table? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I think back, it probably was just a bit over 10 years ago when I kind of hit that point of focusing in this particular niche within the M&A space. And at that time, women truly were a rarity and an exception. I mean, going back even further to when I started at the firm, there were female leaders, no doubt, but it was not uncommon for me to be the only female in a meeting, the only female on a call. And certainly as I kind of pivoted into this, into this M&A and deal space, that became even more prevalent that, you know, the only female voice on a call, the only female voice at the table. It was very common at that time when I think about when I was like a manager and senior manager kind of coming up through the ranks, when I would join these calls and the types of calls I'm describing that I would join, there would be, if we have a corporate acquirer, a corporate client, possibly one of our private equity clients, likely external counsel. So somebody like you, who was either deal counsel or possibly you would bring in your litigation colleagues, depending on if we were talking through strategy to enter a transaction dispute. Sometimes there would be calls where we participated with the other side of the transaction as well, talking through some of the accounting treatments. So when I think about those calls, it was very common that the arbitrator was just assumed to be a man. So in talking through the strategy of how to approach the transaction dispute, it would be very common to hear somebody throw out the question of what would he do? How would he rule here? What do you think he's going to think about this? Even as I was coming up through the ranks at EY, I remember several instances, and I'm chuckling about this. This was before the technology existed now where your picture kind of comes with you in your email. We can see everybody's like headshot in our outlook now. But before you could, you had that as part of the email, there would even be internal emails within EY where somebody would get connected to me because they'd want to talk to me about some provisions of a purchase agreement and they would assume I was a guy. So I would see emails, hey, Mr. Moran, I hear you're the person to talk to in Chicago about this definition of a purchase agreement. 
do you have some time to connect? <laughs> Which I still laugh, but I don't really think Kristen is a male name. But nonetheless, it was very common that I was assumed to be male, an arbitrator would assume to be male. I would say I've seen a huge shift, you know, to seeing more women. I think we still have a long way to go, but at least looking back in the last 10 years, I think we've seen, we've seen a lot of big strides. I've seen certainly more women in very visible leadership roles. And I would say that both within EY and within client organizations and other organizations as well. I mean, our U.S. chair and managing partner in the United States, as well as the America's area managing partner is Kelly Greer. She's one of my partners and also lives in the Chicagoland area. It's so amazing to have a female in that role at EY. When I was promoted to partner in 2017, 30% of my promotion class was female, which was exceptional. And I think one of the highest percentages to date at that time. Certainly, I've seen female partners before that. But probably when I started with the firm, and I don't have those statistics, it probably was in the teens. So to see that number at 30% at the time was incredible. I hope that number continues to grow. And I've also seen a progression, I would say, over the last decade or so, there's certainly more of a focus on diversity and inclusion at EY, and I think amongst many of my clients as well. But I'm seeing a progression even beyond that, even the last few years, from this focus of DNI to now more of a focus on a sense of belonging. So I sit on, within our forensics practice, our diversity and inclusiveness council, and we meet on a very regular basis to discuss sort of the state of the practice and what our sense of the culture is in the practice and how we can support all of our underrepresented talent. And to me now, it really comes down to a sense of belonging for everyone and a feeling that I belong here. There's a place for me here, even if I look different than everybody else. And so I think that's something that I'm very passionate about. And I'm excited to see that that shift is happening and we're moving to a way to do business where we're including so many different people of so many different backgrounds and colors and perspectives. That's incredible. Talk a bit more as a member of that council on what strategies you use to help advance women and diverse people in your organization and what you think other organizations might do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, there is certainly not a single program that if you could implement it, it would work, right? I, I wish that was the case, but there's definitely not an easy button here. And I think it really starts with just individual conversations and individual mindsets. So one of the things that we've been conducting over the last several years within EY, multiple practices beyond forensics, are these inclusive leadership dialogues. So we're hosting conversations around the country small group conversations where we can really challenge each other's mindsets. And are we approaching situations with bias? Are we really being equitable in the opportunities that we have available and ensuring that we're bringing a diverse skill set to the table and not just tapping the shoulder of our right-hand person, our right-hand man or our right-hand woman, and giving those same opportunities to the same person time after time again. I mean, there is certainly a place 
for mentorship and sponsorship. And I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that as we continue our conversation. But I think bringing some of these concepts of how can I lead inclusively and ensure that everybody feels like they belong on this team and that they belong here, how can I do that and keep that at the front of my mind? Because when you're certainly in a deal context, when you're going, 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 and you're under stress and pressure, you very often just fall back on what's easy and what's comfortable. And I think we have to be comfortable with feeling uncomfortable in order to effectuate change within all of our organizations and really promote the advancement of women and all underrepresented talent that's out there. Is that one of the reasons you think that it's important for more women to pursue careers in private equity? Because then there's more leaders, presumably, that have that kind of focus. Although it's important, I'm sure, for all leaders, right, to be outward thinking and thinking of bringing who they're giving work to and not just falling into those patterns. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think when I think about our clients and the team that we're bringing to EY, for example, like our clients want to work with people who look like them and they want to have teams and they want to have advisors that also look like their customers, right? Or themselves within their organization. So I think it's important to, to bring a complete team that represents a variety of different perspectives, backgrounds, and ways to approach problem solving. So when I think about why is it important for women to pursue careers here, especially even entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, when I think about entrepreneurship, M&A, deal work, all of those areas I think are viewed as kind of industries that are at the top of the business world or kind of at the pinnacle, I guess I would say. And because they're, you know, especially complex and they're really dynamic. So kind of similar to other careers that you might see in like math and science, you know, it's, it's really hard to see women these days at the very, very top. And I think it's especially important for future generations. I think about, I have twin daughters and I have a son too, (laughs) but when I think about what my daughters are looking towards for their future and what they want to be when they grow up, I think it's important for them to see women, especially at the top of their game or at the top of organizations, at the top of the business ladders to be there too, and that it to not be an exception. I think now like women in business feels pretty commonplace. But women at the top is not yet. So I guess I'll explain that more. Like when I think about, it's common to see female attorneys these days. It's common to see female accountants. I think it's pretty common or not surprising to find a controller or a CFO within an organization to be a female. That all feels pretty normalized to me. But when you see a female CEO or a female entrepreneur, a female chairwoman, that is more standout right now and exceptional. And so I'd love to be able to see a world where there's more women at the very top like that so that our younger women, our girls growing up around the world can see that that's possible for them. 
I've got a funny kind of, well, not funny, but an interesting story. I was during this e-learning and COVID, we've watched more videos than we normally do. And we were watching a video. I was talking to my girls about what they want to be when they grow up. And interestingly, at first, they, you know, one of my daughters just wanted to be an astronaut for a couple of years. And she's like, I really want to be an astronaut because I don't, but I'm not sure because I don't think the girls could be astronauts. And I said, oh, that's easy. I can find you a bunch of videos. There are female astronauts. There's lots of them and there have been for many years. I quickly found you know, a bunch of examples for her and found a video about the first female astronaut that commanded the International Space Station. And it was so cool and she's super excited. And then she said, well, a girl can't be president. And I had a hard time answering that because absolutely, yes, she can. We haven't had one yet, but a woman could be that. And I, I would love for no girls in the future to make a comment like that or to ask the question, but can a girl do that? Because I think a girl can do anything. And I would love for girls to see, especially in the business world, that they can go all the way to the top. They certainly can enter it. And I think we've proven that. And I, I thank a lot of our women generations and decades ahead of us who pushed that ceiling to allow us to come in and to have a seat at the table. But I think that frontier of the top of the organization is, is still a frontier for us. I'd love to see that change in time for my daughters to be my age. That's a really important point. I mean, pushing that frontier and also thinking for a young girl or for someone starting their career not to see you know, an attorney or accountant or anything and say, that's a female ex, you know? It's a female astronaut, whatever it is. It's just, she's an astronaut. Anyone can do that. And to take that out of the picture, it's not unusual. I mean, I think those are like the two next areas that just keep pushing the boundary up and keep, the more we can subtract the female in front of whatever profession, the better. And it becomes normalized that this is, that anybody can do any of these things. Well, I wanted to talk to you in addition about some of the, what's going on today with COVID and this resurgence we're seeing and how that is, you know, has challenged businesses that you serve, your own business and how that, I mean, I think we can learn from that because I think we'll get another wave, what we might expect to see later. So tell us the challenges you're seeing across the businesses you serve in your own practice. Yeah, certainly technology was a challenge for some of my clients early on. I think when everybody was not quite ready for things to shut down as quickly as they did. Thankfully, uh, like probably law firms are, EY was pretty built for the remote work. So that hasn't been too much of a challenge, but it certainly has changed the way, you know, I maintain and develop relationships at this point since we can't do it in person. I think many of my clients they certainly are experiencing, and we're experiencing this in the deals that we're supporting, both on the buy and sell side as we're approaching trying to close some deals too, this kind of uncertainty of projecting business operations. There are some businesses that are really thriving right now, and there are some that are really behind prior year and behind plan, and they're difficult to even predict what the future trend line might look like. There are a lot of organizations that are challenged from a cash flow perspective as well. And I think even in the deal context, there are a lot of 
buyers and sellers that are feeling the challenge of, or I guess they're feeling the comfort of continuing to execute deals with those that they already had relationships with, but they're finding struggles in developing new relationships with new buyers or sellers that they might not have been entertaining before. So right now I'm seeing a lot of deals that are closing that were kind of already in the works before COVID, went on hold a bit. Now they're getting picked back up. But for those, especially sellers who are wanting to assess what's out in the marketplace and who might be interested, there's less comfort in going with an organization that you have zero relationships with. I'm also seeing, so from when I put my neutral arbitrator hat on, many more clients are willing to go to the mat and fight for money that they might not have otherwise fought for, or that they might have been willing to walk away from previously through a negotiation. So I'm certainly seeing an increase in clients pursuing arbitration instead of being able to successfully achieve a commercial settlement. When I think about like upcoming trends or what we're anticipating, we get that question a lot and we're all very interested in what we can expect. Certainly, especially if there's going to be another surge sometime this fall and winter. I'm talking with many of my colleagues globally about what they're experiencing in deal markets in other countries as well. I mean, certainly the just all of this uncertainty makes it really challenging to predict the values of cash and debt, working capital, and the kind of that balance, what that balance is going to be at closing going forward. And so I'm seeing a lot of clients in the U.S. really and globally assess what is the right pricing mechanism for the deal. So if you have familiarity with the lockbox mechanism, that's a mechanism that's largely more common in European deals than it is in the U.S. It was starting to gain some traction in the U.S. before COVID. In Europe, there's still that comfort with it, but I, we are expecting to see less use of it and more use of a traditional completion accounts mechanism, so a closing networking capital. In the U.S., that closing networking capital was the pretty, pretty much the norm. I don't expect to see many U.S. companies consider locked boxes at this point. That's more of a fixed price deal. And with all these uncertainties, I think it's just really hard for companies to agree to that and to feel comfort that they're protected. I am expecting to see an increase, as I'm starting to see it now, uh, more use of the earnout mechanism or some type of new creative structure or mechanism to measure growth. So I, I'm talking with a lot of clients right now around how can we structure this and measure this? Do we want to do it as an earnout, or do we want to make a unique kind of side mechanism for this one piece? So we're kind of creatively thinking about how to approach a lot of those circumstances. Also, I have to say, especially for clients in the health, in like the health space, they're needing to consider into their purchase agreement and into their structure and pricing of the deal, any cost recovery stimulus dollars. So money that the target company may have received, especially if it's like a hospital system or something from the CARES Act or any other stimulus money, that's creating another element (laughs) to consider in the deal that we didn't have before. So all the more reason that there's, I'm expecting, and there has been so far in my experience, a lot more scrutiny around the language in the purchase agreement and 
it would then, of course, not surprise me if there will be more disputes post-close down the line. That makes a lot of sense. I think we are seeing on our end, too, a lot more earnouts and try creative solutions to predicting what an appropriate purchase price is and without knowing kind of what the future holds for some aspects or some lines of business. So I think we're seeing a lot of that, that too. On a personal note, I know you are an advocate for some more flexible time and work from home measures. How has it been, you know, for you personally working with virtual teams for your clients? Do you see challenges with that and how do you make it successful? That's a great question. It has been stressful. (laughs) I had a very flexible schedule prior to COVID hitting. So I am, I'm actually on a reduced schedule, flexible work arrangement. I'm one of very few partners or women at at EY who've been promoted while on a reduced schedule to the partner rank. So I'm excited about that, but it's, in a way, you know, it's challenging because I am a bit of a pioneer. I'm the only partner that I know of in our practice who's on a reduced schedule. So that brings, you know, its own challenges because I'm constantly monitoring my time and my schedule and man- how I'm managing it all. So before COVID hit, I often worked from home and would be in the office just a couple days a week when it was needed to meet with clients or counsel or my teams. And then I, I would be in my home office or my car office after schoolyard pickup and to kids' activities and things like that. And I also, our forensics practice is a national practice, so I work on national teams within EY. So some of my senior managers, managers, and all of my team members sit in other cities. So we're very used to kind of working on a virtual basis. But with this shelter-in-place and work-from-home model with COVID, like this is very different (laughs) than that. So I would say that my success has evolved during the beginning. And, you know, we had e-learning at home for my twin daughters. They were finishing up first grade. My son is preschool age. My husband and I kind of did a sort of like patchwork shift schedule. So now, now that we're into summer, like the kids are a little bit more relaxed. I think as a family, we're a lot more used to it. We're playing outside more. We're in the backyard more. The kids are getting more used to what our daily routines look like for each of our careers. Many of my teams and some of my clients have met my kids <laughs> over Zoom or other video calls. So I think we're all settling in and I'm certainly, you know, seeing that from clients as well, that they're kind of settling into. I think, I'll tell you, I appreciate, I think that corporate America has always been very 24-7. And prior to COVID, you know, I checked messages over the weekends. I was very responsive to especially urgent situations that needed my attention over the weekend. And it seems that the weekend urgencies are almost not happening anymore in this COVID world. So it feels like we've, in a way, as corporate America kind of regained our weekends. And even clients are, if they've got a request on a Friday afternoon, they're preemptively telling me, we can discuss this on Monday. I don't need this on a Saturday morning. So that's kind of been a nice (laughs) nice thing to see as part of, you know, the corporate humanity. I do miss like the casual hallway office conversations that sort of 
organically would turn into deep career conversations. And so I think one of the things that I've really noticed, and I'm talking a lot uh, amongst my team members at EY2, is that especially as women, I think we need to be more intentional now about those mentorship and sponsorship discussions. Our teams are working like very productively and efficiently, but it seems when we're talking and we're in these virtual meetings that it's very strictly business. And so I think those conversations that are often more comfortable in person that used to happen a lot in the office around mentorship, advancement in career, and talking through a lot of those kind of sponsorship topics, especially, those don't happen as naturally as they did in an in-person world. I think as the person who needs the mentoring and the sponsoring, unfortunately, you know, back to kind of my point of you're your own best advocate, I think when things are busy, those at the top who have the political capital to expand as a sponsor are not always thinking, because they're in these high roles and they don't have the time, they're not always thinking, oh, I should reach out to Kelsey or Kristen and talk to them about how I can sponsor them to move up in the organization right now. Because I think we're still in a little bit of, we're kind of a little bit in like an emergency mode, but I think things have mellowed out now that it's okay to revisit those conversations. And I think, I mean, especially equitable sponsorship is one of like the best opportunities we have to help diversify our workforce. And so I think we just all need to be mindful as women to continue to ask for those conversations because they're just not happening as naturally in this virtual environment that I think they did before. If you could give yourself advice starting out, say as a 22-year-old, what advice would you give yourself? (laughs) That's a good question. I like to say that I live with no regrets. But there are certainly a few things I would have changed along the way if I could have. I would certainly tell my younger self to please take on more risky assignments or not to be afraid of taking on a challenge or going outside of my comfort zone. And not just to take them on, but to ask for them. I did not appreciate when I was younger how much you will always be the best advocate for yourself. And I also did not appreciate how much men asked for opportunities more than I did. And I had to learn to find that voice and to really ask for what I wanted and ask to take on a challenge. I've talked a lot with colleagues that I think, especially when you think about a promotion, I'm totally generalizing here, but many women will not ask for the promotion until they feel that they have checked the box of every single qualification for that role. So if there are 10 boxes to demonstrate readiness, they will wait until all 10 boxes have been checked and probably checked twice before they'll go to their boss and say, I think I'm ready for this. Whereas a man would probably ask for the promotion with maybe two or three boxes checked and have the confidence to try and go for the stretch. And so I would absolutely tell my younger self, go for it and ask for it because those guys down the hall are asking for it too. I think 
there's probably a couple other things too. I would definitely tell my younger self to not be afraid to say no and to learn how to say no gracefully. That took me longer than I would have liked. I think I'm pretty decent at it now. And I think it took me figuring out that when you say no to something, it's not really letting somebody down as much as it's saying yes to something else. And so I would absolutely tell my younger self that. I think I'd also tell my younger self to please figure out while you're young (laughs) what you need to operate to be the best version of yourself. So if that's self-care or whatever it is to help you kind of operate full throttle, what makes you happy, what fills your soul, you know, what makes you joyful, even when you're under pressure and stress, because if you can start those habits younger, you'll fall back on them more easily as you advance in your career, because it only continues to get more stressful as you have more responsibility. And certainly as I became a mother, of three kids and my husband works full time, I'm juggling a lot more than I was in my 20s. So I go back heavily on a lot of my daily rituals and habits to help keep me grounded. And so I think I would have preferred to figure that out in my 20s instead of in my 30s amidst screaming babies (laughs) and career advancement at the same time. Sock away your cash. (laughs) Live below your means and let interest work for you while you can when you're young. I still do that now. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I think that last piece is spoken truly like a CPA. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know. The accountant does come out in me sometimes, and it can't be helped. (laughs) That's great. Kristen, you are, like, such an incredible interviewee. I am so so sweet. No, I'm so excited that we got to talk to you today. I hope that you would come back potentially for another episode because I just think that you have such a great perspective and you're so involved with so many of these things and you really are in the weeds and know, just have a great perspective on women's issues and diversity issues. So I hope that you'll consider coming back at some point. Oh, thank you. I would love to, especially if you guys need... If you do like ever a panel or anything, I would love, I would love to participate in that. I love talking about all this stuff. I think it's really important for women to hear from other women that have gone before them. I wish I would have had more examples coming through the you know. I had a few good ones, but the more examples we can get of women in all areas, in all ranks, I think the more our younger women can see, hey, this can work for me too. I do think it's important for all of our younger women to see a variety of different examples of women in all kinds of roles. And I think about that both in terms of leadership roles, but also seeing women with different examples of how they're managing their career in terms of flexibility also. When I was pursuing and considering asking to be on a flexible work arrangement at AEY, I did not really see a lot of women doing that. And so I didn't know if it would work for me. And so I think I kind of came up in my career thinking there was just one way that it would work. And it was, I could be a woman, but I had to work a million hours a week, (laughs) not a million, but a lot. And so 
I think the more that we can have a variety of different examples of women in all ranks, in all places, doing it in a way that works for them, I think that that's so important to help women see that it could work for them too. And there's not a one size fits all. They can really make a career that works for them. I would love for every woman to feel that they could find a place and a spot for themselves because they see so many amazing examples ahead of them. Well, I think that you're serving as that example to women in your career and your field now, and also to your daughters and your sons. So, and to us today. So thank you for joining us, Kristen, and look forward to talking to you again sometime. Oh, thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLSN. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you.